Hi everyone, just a little warning here. There's a little bit more adult language in this episode than usual. And in the back half of it, we'll be talking about diet culture and anti-fat bias. So if any of this sounds bad to you, skip this episode because don't worry, we'll be back next week with far less cursing. that totally just tricked you by not having sponsors in the beginning. I know, I'm sneaky. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 117. For this episode, I'm going to be splitting up the sponsor shoutouts into a few segments throughout the episode. They might return to the beginning in the future, but I feel like trying something new and no, it's not just because a few people sent me mean messages or left mean reviews, although that does chip away at one psyche. <laughs> As a reminder, these sponsors are small businesses that opt to support Clothes Horse via Patreon every month. Honestly, their support helps me cover the expenses of making the show. You would be surprised how much it all adds up as I am every single month. And I'm beyond grateful for their support. Please support these businesses. They are obviously super rad because they care about the work I'm doing here. Today's special guest is Mary Alice Duff, the founder and creative director of Alice Alexander, a size-inclusive ethical brand. You rarely hear all of those words together in one sentence. So obviously, this is going to be a real delight. And Mary Alice describes herself as a fashion person who reads too many books and has an opinion about everything. So of course, we had such a great time talking for this episode. In fact, our conversation was such a banger that there won't be a lot of other content in this episode. I didn't want to break it into two parts. I just wanted to give it to you all at once. After our conversation, I'm going to talk about grocery stores, the idea of just business, and the dark triad. Yep, it all ties together, I I swear. So let's just jump right into my conversation with Mary Alice. first thing I'm going to do is ask you to introduce yourself to everyone. All right. Hi, I'm Mary Alice. Um, Mary Alice Duff. I'm the founder and creative director at Alice Alexander, uh, which is a apparel company where we design really bright and bold, colorful pieces that are super wearable, sustainable, responsibly made, and of course, uh, made in a diversity of sizes. Um, And we ship those to people around the world. And it's important to call out to everybody that you are not in the United States right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. I have been living in the south of France for the past um, five months, six months. <sighs> Sounds so nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it is really lovely. And um, But today I had my first awful experience with the, the infamous French bureaucracy oh, yeah. trying to get um, – trying to get my pass sanitaire, which is like the proof that you've been vaccinated to get ah. it fixed. And um, I've had to call like a dozen different places. And meanwhile, I'm doing all this in French and I am not yet fluent in French, like arguing with people, trying to explain myself. And it's just 
So I had my first day of like, wow, this is, yeah, <laughs> now, now I'm really French because I just had to deal with all this bureaucratic bullshit. So. Oh, that sounds horrible to me. I mean, I can't even handle like going to get a driver's license. It's way too stressful or like yes, passport right? renewal. Yeah. So oh, I, passport renewal. The yes. worst. The DM, and the DMV renewal is the worst. But yes, it is mostly lovely. The weather is lovely. The people are lovely. Um, yeah. It's been a, an interesting ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to talk later about why you are in France because yeah. you're not a millionaire or a billionaire. You're not living <laughs> on a yacht. We'll get to that. But let's start by talking about how you got into fashion. Was it always your life plan that you were going to have oh your gosh. own line? No. Oh, my gosh. No, not at all. So, you know, I should explain, like, I'm from Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Delco! Yeah. Delco. So if anybody knows anything about Delco, and if my accent comes out, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Delaware County is like a little place out, right outside Philadelphia, and the people are like salt of the earth. Nobody cares about fashion. If you wear anything remotely fashionable, they're just going to make fun of you. <laughs> you know, they're just going to rip you apart. Um, so nobody knows anything about fashion. Nobody cares about fashion. Um, and I learned to sew as a little girl on my grandmother's sewing machine in her, you know, row home in Philadelphia. Um, and I always, I never really cared about fashion as much as I cared about clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agreed. I was always interested in, yeah, fabric, style, color. I've always had an affinity for color, just like a really natural, like that works, that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and style was always interesting to me, but never knew anything about designers didn't know who anybody famous was, did not watch Fashion Week, did not covet like designer items, like designer handbags or anything. That was never like Mm -hmm. a thing for me. Um, So yeah, personal style was always interesting to me. I was always dressed nicely despite being like a low income kid. Like I always found a way to make it work. And my, I was always the person that my girlfriends would turn to like, hey, does this work? I'm going here. Is this a cute outfit? Or I have a job interview. Can you help me pick something? I've always been that person. Um, but fashion, like with a capital F, no. <laughs> never, <laughs> never really like been into that uh, from like a uh, creative or even like as a possible job. Um, in fact, I went to school for my undergrad for psychology and then I did a master's in social work and a second master's in law and social policy. So what I've always been really interested in is why the United States in particular seems to be plagued with a whole host of social issues, Mm -hmm. despite being, quote unquote, the most powerful, quote unquote, the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet we have people and children living in extreme poverty. We have people living on the street. We have people without health care. I couldn't wrap my brain around that as a young person. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I became obsessed with. Uh, trying to understand why those issues were so persistent in America. Um, And I worked as a social worker for 10, 15 years, really focusing on uh, larger like systems issues. So, you know, I did the individual one-on-one work. And then as I got older, transitioned into more policy, program development, planning, managing, um, Thought, thinking that would be really fulfilling, but it turns out the uh, nonprofit sector and government uh, can be just as toxic and just as internally corrupt as uh, any for-profit company, you know? Uh, uh, it's like you so, can't yeah. trust anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, it's just we're 
just because we work in a nonprofit or we work for a public agency or we work for a fashion company, we're all swimming in the same pool, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And and you can't like you're not this little island that's functioning outside of the capitalist culture that is the United States, right? Right. So, and not to get too deep into it, we're like three <laughs> seconds into this podcast, but. Uh, <laughs> But it's like, it's, yeah, you can't escape it because we're all swimming in it every day. Yeah. You can't get out of the pool. Like, that's it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, I do think we're going to talk more about how you ended up landing in fashion. But I do want to say, I think this is a really, to me, an interesting and possibly better way to, like, where you started ending in fashion seems to me to be setting you up to be a more compassionate, thoughtful business. Because, like, fashion and social justice do not go hand in hand. And anytime I see see a brand flexing that, I'm like, oh, man. It's, like, so transparent to me that it's not real. Yes, yes. Because all the companies I've worked for, and I've told you some of them, they Mm -hmm. they don't give a fuck about people or the planet. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you that. It's always a cynical cash grab now that doesn't mean that the people who work there don't care it's just like the company as as it functions as it you know its priority is making profits paying shareholders all of that Mm -hmm. does not care because that stands in the way of reaching those numbers of course and they have if they're a publicly traded company as some of these uh, these companies are they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to deliver the financial returns and and this is what i mean that we're swimming in it companies are purposefully designed to deliver financial returns and financial returns only. Yep. Yeah, so that's exactly right. We we are literally counting on benevolent billionaires to save us. <laughs> and let me tell you, they ain't coming. You know? No. And and that is what just drives me compl- I get so impatient and I get so frustrated because I don't want to count on rich people to save us from this crisis. No. Absolutely and, and not. Yeah, and that is kind of how our system is designed. Oh, I hope Jeff Bezos gives up some of his wealth so we can all stop suffering. Oh, I hope uh, Elon Musk doesn't build another dick rocket to the moon so that maybe we can like <laughs> feed the hungry. It's yeah. completely asinine that we are waiting on these people to just do the right thing because it's not going to happen. I wish it would. It is It is not. It would – like honestly – the phrase benevolent billionaire is in an oxymoron oh, in itself because right? if you are a billionaire, <laughs> you decided a long time ago that yeah. accumulating wealth was far more important to you than anything else because exactly. literally no one needs a billion dollars. No one needs a billion dollars. Yeah. No one. Yeah. And, and, and I think what we really struggle with, so, you know, Americans test terribly in math. I don't know. We're like way down the bottom of the list. <laughs> and I think, and when you say like, nobody deserves to be a billionaire because we're all just such, we have such uh, capitalism ingrained in us. We all have this like knee jerk response, like, oh, 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 but, 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 but they worked really hard. It's like, no, no, no. You don't understand the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. Like yep. these things Sure, somebody does something really cool, invents something really innovative, sets up a cool company, great. They want to go be a millionaire, wonderful. But the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire is freaking massive. There's no one on this planet that needs a billion dollars. Yeah. There's no one. I mean, studies have been shown that you would have to spend money at this egregious amount every single day to <laughs> exactly. spend it in your lifetime. And it's, it's, that's, it's, I was thinking, we're going off the rails already, but I was thinking a few right, nights ago. Right. Yeah, already. I was laying in bed and I was like, 
there's got to be some sort of like mental illness attached to being a billionaire because narcissism that for one but also like this like greed that is insatiable that you need so much right i i don't know i was just i was just thinking about that that like you have more than you could ever actually use even if Mm -hmm. you've used it in the most wild exorbitant way right yeah so why do you still feel driven to have more and i I don't know shut yourself off with that Right? Yeah. I, I just – you're shutting yourself off from the rest of the world in yes. many ways. You yes. have to – you're you're wearing blinders when it comes to the wrong things in the world. And I just it, – it's a type of person that I don't – I don't actually know any billionaires personally. No, but nor do I. I. I look at like <laughs> – right? <laughs> I look at Jeff Bezos or, you know, Elon Musk on social media or read mm-hmm. about their shenanigans and I'm like, no, it it is a personality type. It's, yeah. Is there a mental illness in there, you know? I, I just don't know. it's there's there's something it lacks humanness to me. Yeah, I know yeah. humanness is probably not a word, but like it lacks <laughs> there 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 is something there that it's there's a disconnect in their ability to like reach out and connect with other human beings. Like how can you watch the world suffer knowing that with literally the stroke of a pen you could change it? I know. I, I just know. Like, that is what I can't wrap my brain around. It's so. It's so. It's. I just can't understand it. Yeah. And it. And I. I. The just the responsibility that these men have on their shoulders, mm-hmm. not for their actual work, but for the injustice of their world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like to have that. To have that power to possibly be able to fix things, yet continue building dick rockets instead is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's just something that I can't understand. And what I I. hate is that this is is sold to us as like life goals. Yeah. Success. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really it's a it's a real problem to me. So anyway, we just took a total derail (laughs) and we didn't even get to you starting your own line. (laughs) Yeah. So how did I start my company? So um, I was a social worker. I worked in the nonprofit sector and I was really like working my way up quickly from department to department. And I found myself being the person asking board members, these were very wealthy individuals, no billionaires, mind you, but multimillionaires <laughs> several times over, uh-huh. um, asking for six and seven figure checks to invest in you know the programming we were offering for the people that we were serving. So people experiencing homelessness, um, kids in super underfunded schools, workforce development programs, that sort of thing. And I would show up to these meetings. Now, uh, at this point, I would uh, got married, I had a baby, and I went from wearing like a dress size 1214, which if any of the listeners out there have been this size, it's kind of the line you can kind of get away with shopping, quote unquote, like straight size stores or off the rack stores, you know, to being plus size. And as I got older, had a baby, life, suddenly I found myself size 16, size 18, size 20. And then all the clothes just disappeared. It literally was like, I went from shopping, I could get a nice wool skirt, a beautiful silk blouse and look really sharp for these meetings to here's some stretchy polyester shit. Here's some, uh, here's some jeggings, right? That'll yeah. fit size fat. Here's uh, some, a Jersey t-shirt with a bunch of crap bedazzled over the chest because don't you want everybody to see your huge boobs like sparkling with, you know, bejeweled stuff. On them? Uh, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. I ended up wearing maternity clothes for two years. Now my daughter, what? yes, because I was just so frustrated with the lack of interesting, well-made, good quality material clothing in my size. And 
I figured there has to be a way for me to solve this issue. I had, you know, looked at all the websites. Um, you know, I had been somebody who did shop some fast fashion, definitely was into fast fashion. I was like a 20 something. Uh, the more money I made in my career though, the more I tried upgrading. So like buying the better material. And when I was trying to find those in the larger sizes, there just was nothing there. So, um, like I said, my grandmother taught me to sew as a little girl, never applied it to clothing, more like home goods and Halloween, uh, Halloween costumes. Um, and I said, let me see if I can actually like sew my own wardrobe. Um, and I found all these amazing resources online. The curvy sewing collective on Facebook is the greatest place on earth for anybody who wants to learn to sew. Um, cashmere patterns, which is started by, uh, she's now a friend of mine. Her name is Jenny Rushmore. She started this amazing plus size pattern company. And between those two resources, I recreated basically everything in my wardrobe in my size, in the best materials wow. and the best fabrics and the best fit. Now, granted, I still had this fear that my clothes were just going to explode, like while I was like, <laughs> walking to work. I had this like uh, this really weird belief that because I was making them on a home sewing machine, they couldn't possibly be as good as the ones made on an industrial sewing machine by an expert sewer in a factory somewhere. And that my clothes would just like explode. And so I would start bringing, I would bring backup <laughs> clothes in my work bag. Oh my goodness. Listen, nothing ever tore. I never split the seam. Nothing ever disintegrated. But I had this mind block that you don't wear homemade clothes like out in the world, right? It's so <laughs> silly in retrospect. Um, but yeah, I started really getting absolutely obsessed with fit, fabric, the way my clothes felt on my body. And I also resolved all of my body hangups simply by wearing things that fit and made me feel good. Wow. I, I didn't have a desire to lose weight anymore. I wasn't, you know, beating myself up for this changed body. You know, there's so much in our culture about bouncing back after having a baby. Oh, Screw don't get that, me started. Right? Yeah. And it was amazing that the the issue that had been plaguing me that I was having body issues. I was feeling really down about myself. I couldn't find clothes simply by putting clothes on my body that fit really well and felt amazing. Suddenly I felt like the most kick-ass human being in the world. And I could go into that board meeting and ask for a million dollars or I could quit my job and start a company. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, um, yeah. I, I started taking some design classes at night to try and like beef up my skills a little bit, professionalize a little bit. Uh, started getting really into business planning. I've always been a very strategic thinker, so that was that came really natural to me. And then I got a little bit of money together and uh, told my husband, like, hey, I want to do this thing. And at first he was like, okay. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> cool. And then when I actually, like, a couple months later came back and I was like, here's my business plan and I have this idea and I'm quitting in five months. And he was like, okay. <laughs> Cool. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's what I did <laughs> five years ago. That's, wow. I mean, and yeah. five years to me is like, that's like, you know, you're you're on track. Like five years. I feel like a lot of like new apparel brands are sort of like restaurants. Like what is that? Mm -hmm. Like most restaurants fail in a year or something. Yeah. Like if to make it to the five year mark really says that like all of this is paying off. Well, like, and half of it the right has way. been in a pandemic. <laughs> right. I mean, kudos. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been the first four years, really the whole time has been, uh, how do I describe it? It it can be excruciating 
to be <laughs> quite honest, really. And there's so much pressure, especially when you have employees. And, but at no point did I not believe that we could make it work. And I have to say, my partner, my husband, he is the most, the, the couple of times where I have been very seriously like, fuck this. I just want to quit. <laughs> and he's like, no. He's like, we, you have invested too much. You have done too much. You have come too far. I'm not letting you quit today. Good. I love hearing that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I always say entrepreneurship is the best course in personal development that anyone could ever invest in because you will learn more about yourself than any any other opportunity truly i could see see that uh, well that's that's a great transition to something you and i want to talk about which was you know why and how the culture at alice alexander is different from just about every other fashion company out there i mean obviously there are exceptions but (laughs) most of them are pretty uh toxic and as you mentioned nonprofit is just as toxic so what do you do differently so I think well for starters I should say that I just had to lay off you know six employees all of my employees um so if anybody's listening uh and follows us you know that's going on because I've been very transparent um but I think why I was able to grow Alice Alexander the way I did, build the team I had, and then let go of that team without without hard feelings, right? Like, it sucks. Nobody ever wants to have to lay people off. Nobody ever wants to have to get rid of a team member, right? No one ever wants to do that. Nobody ever wants to lose their job. And and culturally, we – the expectation is that that is going to be an awful experience and both parties are going to have terrible things to say about the other, right? The employee about the employer and the employer about the employee. But I will say, as far as having to dismantle a business and let go of folks, there was lots of tears, but there was never any screw you, screw this, screw this, none of that. It was like, we have given this 110% and it just didn't work. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I think yeah. part of that comes down to I I never worked for a fashion company before, so I did not have like a lens from <laughs> which to like view how fashion companies should be run. Right? Um, as a manager, you know, in my previous roles, I always had a very collaborative approach when it came to uh, really simple day to day things like work styles, like understanding people's preferences. Some people work better in the morning, some people work better at night. Treating people mm-hmm. like adults. You don't need to tell me why you need to take a sick day. I don't need to know. Seriously. I do not need to know. You have the time. Take the time. I don't need a doctor's note. You are a grown-up. So it's all these like little, (laughs) right? It's all these little things. When employers get on their employees about coming in at 10 or 11 versus coming in at 9, I don't care what time you start your day. Uh You start your day, what works good for you. As long as you get the work done and we meet our goals, that's all I care about. So you know, it's these little day-to-day things and then it's the bigger thing. So crafting job descriptions and being really clear about what's needed and what they're good at and what skills they bring to the table and what support they need, doing that in a collaborative way. I think for me, it always came down to if I'm doing something from the top down, I'm I'm doing it wrong and you're actually not going to get the results you want. You have to do things in your business, whether it's the little day-to-day things or it's the larger big picture things. They have to be done in a way that is collaborative and transparent. 
And that's going to get you not only results, but it's going to get you buy-in from your people. And so in the five years that I had my team, I always ran things that way. Um, and I'm proud to say that the first person I hired is the last person uh, leaving us. They, today is their last day. Um, you know, we were together five years. And yeah, I had really good employee retention. And even right now, you know, they've all said, like, if we can figure out how to make this work, we all want to come back and work. <laughs> um, and again, I think it's just being a freaking human being. You know? Yeah. I mean, you and I were talking about one of the companies that I worked for mm -hmm. um, that is based in Philadelphia. And employees sort of came in two categories there. Either they came in really fast and turned and burned mm -hmm. because it's a really difficult place to work. The demands are really high. Yeah. The culture is toxic, right? And then they, they left and who knows how they felt. Maybe they were there for such a short period of time that they didn't walk away with a lot of negative mm -hmm. feelings, although I find that impossible. <laughs> And then there would be the people who were there, 5, 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. sometimes 20, which is really unheard of in this day and yeah, age. Yeah, totally. And when they would finally leave, they were just – it was like a brutal, ugly divorce Oof. for them where they just like hated that company. Mm -hmm. The grudge was so massive. They felt – I mean, and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Like they felt – so exploited, abused, disrespected. They felt like they've been treated as if they were disposable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, those are the people who leave and are like, I will totally take that company down yeah. in the future. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I I will not anybody, let anybody I know shop there. I will never hear the names mm -hmm. of the that company's brands or pass their stores and not feel be filled with rage. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just so unacceptable that any employee whether they'd been there for a year or 15 years would leave fe feeling as if they had just gone through this really ugly divorce and yet this is the story i hear time and time again it's so normal and it's so normalized right like yeah we've normalized it from the experience of both the employee and the employer that the employer then thinks it's acceptable or the business thinks it's acceptable for people to feel this way. So they do nothing to change their behavior. Right. Cause this is the, this mm -hmm. is the norm. Mm -hmm. And this is business. This is business. It's just business, baby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is business. But yeah. this is the water we're swimming in. Like back to the, you know, this is, this is the culture of capitalism when the bottom line is only financials, financials and how much money a company is bringing in. <laughs> it does not matter if your people are, angry or disgruntled or miserable or or anything all that matters is how's how, how are the numbers exactly i mean ultimately like when you work for a lot of these companies within the industry you are just a number you're a body mm -hmm. in a seat that will be replaced or that role will be eliminated or whatever mm -hmm. and you know something i've been i've been reading so much about the great resignation there's like nine mm. gazillion think pieces about it right mm -hmm. and something i was reading and thinking about a few nights ago not the same night that i was thinking about do billionaires have a mental illness mm. but uh was loyalty and how mm. employers expect this extreme amount of loyalty from They're their employees. Loyal to their employees. Exactly. Oh it's, not it's not I a two-way street. I mean, listen, street. if you had a relationship in your life, whether it was your 
partner, your mm-hmm. friend, some relative, that you just did everything you could for them. Everything was always on their terms, but they turned around and cut you off or were shitty to you. Everybody would be like, Mary Alice, get out of that relationship. Exactly. It's so exactly. toxic, right? Yes. And yes, this is the norm for work mm-hmm. that yep. you should prioritize work over anything yep. else, yep. Uh, your health, your family, all of that. Exactly. But realize that at any moment, you could be cut for good. And, and Absolutely. that... That is, why is that okay? Once again, I know it's like that sea that we're swimming in, but I, during the pandemic, I would see different articles out there about different companies who were basically mm-hmm. treating their workers, like putting them in harm's way. Like, oh, absolutely. My previous employer was still having yep, people come in and work one. in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the comments on that post on Instagram were people like, yeah, well, if you don't like your job, quit it or stop being oh snowflakes or this is how business works. And I was like, right. wow, we have to get rid of that. And it's not just business. Yeah. My husband was a teacher. Yeah, exactly. And he had the same, he had the same thing. Oh, you guys just want to work from home. You, nobody wants to work. You just want to collect a paycheck. <sighs> People were saying, I'm gonna, I should stop paying my property taxes because Jesus. obviously you guys aren't working anymore. My husband has never worked harder trying to come up with online learning plans for 32 middle school students Good Lord. every single day. Like, are you kidding? And low-income kids who don't even have internet access, half of them are sitting in parking lots to get internet access. <sighs> I just, it's, it's, it's disgusting that we live in this world where we it is perfectly acceptable for employees employers and organizations to treat the people as if they are just cogs in a wheel of machinery and not actually living breathing humans with lives and joy and hopes and dreams yeah right? yeah <laughs> so. that you would that you would lay, put your life on the line to go to your job now i understand oh it's obscene fire it's, it's an obscene right ass. fire rescue people do that i get it fine soldiers, whatever. But like, you know, when you're a teacher or you work in fashion, you're not signing up for that. Right. And that's what I, I mean, when the pandemic started, that's what we had a pandemic. We had a COVID-19 policy that we put into place about what would happen if you came in contact with somebody? What would happen if you had tested positive? We're going to work from home. I put sewing machines. I rented a U-Haul and put sewing machines in people's houses so that people didn't have to come to work but could still earn money. (laughs) Like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah literally i i because we're making fucking clothes exactly we saving lives here yes do i think our work is important does it matter does it make people feel amazing yes is it worth anybody dying no is it worth you getting an illness that could financially bankrupt you no it is not worth that <laughs> no job is worth that trust me no job literally no job no job no job no, no. no job <laughs> yeah and i think like it's these toxic cultures i mean they're they're everywhere and they just continue and it's yeah. it's sort of like well if you don't like it then like don't have just you know, quit just quit and don't be a part of business yeah. right <laughs> so you know something you and i talked about we were getting really riled up when we were preparing for this which probably isn't a surprise to you if you're listening to this right now but one thing we talked about is like how you know like amazon all these other big like mm-hmm. so-called evil companies i mean they're they're pretty terrible right nobody mm-hmm. questions it they're just like yeah no. let's hey like if that's business, you, That's baby. business. Like, you you know, we all are going to be yep. billionaire if you want to be a billionaire, yep. that kind of thing. That's Me- what you got to do. Meanwhile, <laughs> other end mm-hmm. of the spectrum, every small yep. business, especially if it's women-owned, especially if it's mm-hmm. owned by a person of color, if it's a woman of color, mm-hmm. forget it, is getting mm-hmm. harassed about, like, not being perfect, about pricing, mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. or that. 
what are your thoughts on that? Why are we such assholes to small businesses? <laughs> but we're like, whatever, Bezos. Yeah, whatever, Amazon. Yeah. You do what you got to do, bro, to make that dollar, right? Yeah. It's so <laughs> weird. Yeah. It is it is absolutely infuriating infuriating and what really uh, really set me over the edge. So a company I love that makes super cool shit. I'm on their email list. They sent an email about why they had to raise prices recently, and I've I've, I've done the same thing at Alice Alexander. I mean, I've I've sent that Instagram post or email, and you know, really broke it down. And I'm reading it, nodding along. Yup, yup, living that price of fabric, price of labor. Price. USPS has increased their rates thirty percent. Mm-hmm, All of it. Mm-hmm. Get it? Nodding along. And then I close the email. I'm in the shower washing my hair. And I'm thinking about a tweet that I recently saw from an, another person I love on Instagram. And she is talking about the cost of masks. How in December, the box of the really good ones, what are they, the K95s or yeah, something? Yeah, they went up a lot. They went up. It was like yeah. 20 bucks in December, but then we had a fifth wave or I don't know what wave we're on. And I they know. Went to, <laughs> they went up to 50 bucks, right? They went up to 50 bucks. And now people have to spend more than twice. Yeah, they spent before. And I'm like, did Jeff Bezos send an email explaining why he had to increase the price on the box of masks? Seriously. I mean, I've been been reading how a lot of... There was no email. I did not get that email. (laughs) And he didn't make himself vulnerable and talk about how his business... No, he didn't put himself out there. Yeah. hard and... The, no, no, the person, the, whomever the seller is, whether it's Amazon or a third-party seller, who knows? It's not the point. But they saw an opportunity to capitalize in the market, and they went for it. Yeah. And that is the expectation that they are supposed to do that. Yeah. And we as the consumer grumble, and then we just get out our credit card and we buy the thing because we need it or we want it, right? It's so, it's so interesting to me because I have been, you know – talking to my clients and just mm. like receiving emails like our costs are going up this is why mm-hmm. meanwhile i read a series of articles a couple weeks ago about how grocery store chains have actually been making just these incredible levels of unforeseen profits because they yep. just raised their prices yep. even when they didn't have to yep. because they mm-hmm. just assumed customers were like stuff is getting more expensive exactly and yet i didn't get an email from kroger nope you know and i I didn't go into Kroger and be like, what the hell? This is too expensive. You're charging exactly. me this for tea chips. No. And nope. yet I see that kind of, I mean, honestly, it's like, it's bullying on Instagram. You know, I think that we have this idea that the American dream, which we know is bullshit. The American mm-hmm. dream is being a billionaire, right? Mm-hmm. It is not running a small business, doing things the right way, feeling good about what you're doing and the people it affects and you know being passionate about it. No, mm-hmm. that is not the American dream. The American dream is you know, billionaireism. And so we can't even look at small businesses as relatable people, you know, and like want to support mm. them. Like, I, it's just so bizarre to me because I've talked to people who are, I'm like, why don't you shop, you know, why don't you try to quit Amazon, shop other businesses? Or if you mm-hmm. can't quit Amazon, that's fine too. I get it. But, you know, Obviously, some people are still buying a lot from Amazon. It's a pandemic. There are accessibility mm-hmm. issues. But other people are like, eh, it's just too much work. It's or like, too much work, yeah. It might not be as good. Or they, they might not have what I want. Or mm-hmm. like, who cares? It's all buying no matter what. And mm. those are the same people who I think are like going on Instagram and being like, I can't believe you would charge $50 for this. Right. <laughs> right. And I and – I, I only hear that type of, I only see that type of commenting on small women and minority people of color owned businesses. I don't see it on 
nobody's questioning these big retailers. There is an expectation that big businesses are in the game of profit and making money. But, and then there's also this expectation that small businesses are doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And I don't understand how we arrived at this point where I know. You, think, you think I can pay my rent out of the goodness of my goddamn heart, but everybody else has to pay their rent in cash. No, no. I pay my rent in cash too. I pay for my groceries in cash. I pay for all the things in my life in cash. You know, like I can't pay for those things with sunshine and smiles. So I have to make a living. And the way in which I do that is through my small business, Right. Right. And it's a job. I shouldn't, feel, I shouldn't feel ashamed of that. I should not feel shame in my desire to run a profitable business. And maybe because culturally we have such a love-hate relationship with wealth, right? You know, we aspire to wealth. We aspire to being rich. But we also, and I don't know what faith you grew up in. I grew up in the Catholic faith and there was a lot of dirty feelings around rich being rich and wealth and having those things as if that was a bad thing. Um, I'm not talking billionaires. I'm talking just like comfortable and not struggling Mm -hmm. and not worrying every single day. Um, So I don't know why we are so bent out of shape when we see small businesses charging prices that not only help them just get by, that should not be the goal. Right. Right. Get by. Like, I just don't want, like, just don't suffer. But like, also you shouldn't be having like a really nice life. Yeah. Right. I want you to be too comfortable. Like, I want to make sure you're working like 60 hours a week and busting your ass. And being stressed for sure. And being super stressed and like kind of living on the edge a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I actually want everybody to work less and to work less hard and to be less stressed and make more money so that you can not only invest in your business, but yourself, because you are the biggest asset to your business, the person who owns it and runs it, right? Totally. Yeah. So yeah, and I really only see those kind of comments directed at businesses like mine. Now, granted, I don't get those comments very often. I've, I've shut them down very early in my businesses. Um, you know, I remember the the early years getting a lot of those comments and being like very clear. I don't tolerate that shit in my space. Good. Like, my Instagram is my digital house, and I don't let assholes in my house. So <laughs> like, I we're love gonna that. Be kind, and we're gonna be kind, and we're gonna be respectful, and mm-hmm. we can disagree. That's totally cool, but. You're not going to say things like that. You're not going to disparage me or my teammates or our level of expertise and skill and just us being human beings and that we have a right to live a nice life just because we're humans and we're here on planet Earth. Um, But yeah, I've shut that down really early in the business's uh, development, but I see a lot of other small businesses get comments like that. And I'm just like, "Mm, you got to stand up for yourself and you just got to tell people like that. No, no, you can't make comments like that totally i to be honest i in the beginning of of close force was really hesitant to block people because mm. i you know i was like oh it's like a community like i don't want to mm-hmm. be censor censoring things but now i'm like fuck you you come in here and you talk to me like i'm jeff bezos and tell me i post clickbait or i'm incompetent mm-hmm. or don't know what i'm doing you're gonna get blocked because you're yeah. not here to have a conversation exactly and that's the difference yeah yeah. That's the difference. When you can autom- when you automatically see that you don't want to have a conversation here. 
that's, that's when it's like, no, no, we're not going to do this. And also, why should I provide more free labor to you, <laughs> person on the internet, who is very obviously does not want to actually grow and move on from your current position, right? Yeah. Like, no, like you have, you know, your Instagram is incredible. You provide an, an unbelievable amount of content and it's all there if people want to take the time to, to read it, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I don't understand. I, I think, I mean, listen, I've been having conversations with all my friends because a lot of us mm-hmm. have been dealing with mean people on the internet and it definitely. Mean ex- people on the internet. Right. Yes. It definitely accelerated <laughs> like over the last few months. And I think, you know, yeah. like I was telling one of my friends, there was this day I woke up and I was like, I can't mm-hmm. take it anymore. Someone mm-hmm. had sent me this nasty message overnight mm-hmm. that by using vintage uh, inspiration for my visuals that I was like mm. spreading this like anti-vintage sentiment. It was really toxic. What? And I, yeah, anyway, I know. Anyway, they, they were just grasping at straws, right? They wanted to be mm. mean to someone. And I was like, yeah. I get it. They had a bad day. They don't know me. I'm this mm-hmm. faceless person that they can just mm-hmm. be mean to. I shouldn't have to go on the internet and say, look at me. I'm this vulnerable person too to get people yes. to be nice. But unfortunately, Ugh. that's where we are. And I that morning I opened my phone and the first thing on Apple News was this Washington Post article, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos reference here, uh, Washington <laughs> Post article about how people are like on their worst behavior of like all time right now oh, because because like we've been going through so much just like We're collective trauma. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I was like, okay, but I always have to like listen. I agree. We have mm-hmm. all been through it. Yeah, that doesn't mean we need to go out there and be jerks to one another, and Absolutely. it doesn't mean that we have to take it. Yes, yes. So I can recognize. So then, this is where my social work training. I always am thankful that I went through so many years of training because there was something we always used to say, <clears throat> and it's that hurt people hurt people. Yeah, so people people who are hurt who are hurting are going to lash out and look for others to hurt, and that also doesn't mean that you can allow those people to walk all over you and treat you like shit. So so when somebody comes for me and has something to say or has, you know, a real attitude or wants to be really disrespectful, I can shut down that conversation in a way that doesn't throw shit back in their face, right? Because they're already hurting, Mm -hmm. right? But but I can do it in a way that's going to protect my peace. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm not going to – I'm going to explain my position – and I'm not going to explain this further, right? And, like, we yeah. don't need to take the conversation offline. Like, we don't need to do that. We're not in relationship, right? And that's the other thing. Like, who are you to each other? <laughs> really? Like, right. you're a person on the internet who follows me versus, like, are you a part of my family? Are you my partner? Are you a friend? You know? And, th- and that's the other thing. Like, weighing, like, how much time and energy am I going to invest in this when we're not in a relationship and we don't have plans to be in one? so like why do we need to take this conversation further right yeah just being really smart about that because I'm a very sensitive and very feeling person and I take everything personally and so for me I have to be really 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 super mindful about where I give any attention otherwise I just I literally will not be able to function (laughs) absolutely I mean it's it's weird like I will have a conversation with my husband and I'll be like I never would have foreseen a situation in which I would be upset about something that happened on Instagram but these things I know <laughs> they take a toll right yeah even yeah. if that person you blocked them or you feel mm-hmm. like you defuse the situation it's still in there and it's yep 
it gives me a lot of anxiety. So Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. like I don't I think it's important much as people are like, "Oh, it's just business. This is just how business is." A lot of people tend to be like, "Well, it's just, just how social media is." And it's like, "Yeah, but it doesn't need to be that way exactly. and we don't need to expose ourselves and, to and that." And again, so, like let's not normalize bad behavior. Yeah, right? exactly. We do an awful lot of that. Well, conversely, expecting like next level saintly peer behavior from other people exactly. it's really bizarre exactly. we're all human it's really bizarre. we're all flawed we're all gonna make mistakes you know and it's and it's the internet yeah like <laughs> it's like the wild, wild exactly west out there that's why i try not exactly. to spend too much time on it i'm actually getting pretty good yeah. at that so that's yeah. good that's good it's best it's best for everyone Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. 
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. So you touched on something a few minutes ago that I want to talk about, which is just this idea that we have to justify as small business owners, as people who are doing any kind of work who are 100% not billionaires, we have to justify any meager quality of life that we have. (laughs) And... Like, like we're not – like, everyone's not living on a yacht. I've had this – honestly, same conversation with so many people who work as activists mm-hmm. in, oh, in the absolutely. world of, like, slow fashion or, you know, environmentalism. Like, they're like, yeah, people think I'm, like, making Instagram posts for my yacht. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. But I think that there's this weird disconnect. I already know where you're going to – where your feelings are on this, but I want to hear you say it out loud again. <laughs> Can you be anti-capitalist and still get paid for your work, comma, is it okay to, or maybe more of a semicolon, is it okay to profit from your work (laughs) and be anti-capitalist? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes and yes. And I think what's really important is like we have to tease out what, like the difference, number one, between capitalism and commerce, right? So Mm -hmm. capitalism is a system of extracting profits from labor in a way that gives nothing back to the laborers, right? And we treat human beings as if they are commodifiable goods that we can just pull, 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 pull from, right? They are just cogs in the wheel. And all of the wealth is concentrated at one end of the spectrum, and at the other end of the spectrum, there is zero power, right? Different, so Mm -hmm. so that's an economic system, right? And then there's commerce, which has existed since the dawn of time. So you've got a blacksmith and he makes some shit and you've got a baker and she bakes some stuff and they're trading, right? And then money is invented and somebody is paying for things. We have always needed to buy or barter our way to get things, right? So that we can live Mm -hmm. our lives. So I think we have to really tease those things out. I think in this world that we're living in right now where we've seen the incredible damage that a hyper, hyper capitalized 
society has done to us as human beings, we have this like knee jerk response to freak out anytime we see somebody profiting or making wealth for themselves as a result of their business. Because our brain, like we just can't separate that person, that small business owner doing well from the horrendous asshole that is Jeff Bezos, right? So it's like, yeah, we have to be, those, those two things are different. Those are different. We should want all of us to be profiting from our work in a way that enriches our lives and makes life less stressful. Listen, I've been poor. I've been 200% below the poverty line. I've had to apply for aid. Being poor fucking sucks. It's stressful. I am traumatized from years of not being able to pay my bills, of almost losing my house to foreclosure. I am fucking traumatized by that shit. I would not wish that on my worst enemy. So why do we get so upset when we see good people and good people making money? And I'm not talking about billionaires. I'm talking about enough money that they don't have to work 60 hours a week, that they can pay for the things they need in their house. They can go on vacation a couple times a year. They cannot work on the weekends. We should want that for everyone. Absolutely. Right? They could see a doctor they whenever they're sick. Like, things like that. Jesus. These are luxuries you do not get. Like when you're poor, you do not get to see no, a doctor you don't. whenever you're sick. No, you don't. You, you don't get to you buy healthy so food. You have so much anxiety. So much anxiety. You don't. So much anxiety about logging into your checking oh account. Oh my god! The, and the credit and the creditors <laughs> calling you and thinking that you're oh gonna, my god you're lose your house or coming up with excuses about why you don't got the money again this week. Listen, I like I said, would not wish it on my worst enemy. It is the amount of stress and what that does to your body. It's unreal. Yeah. So yes, yeah. we should all of us as small business owners. If we want to do the most good we possibly can in the world, and I have a feeling that we want to do good, we should all be striving towards running profitable small businesses, that we are making a wage that is not just a living wage, but a thriving wage so that we can give back in our community, so that we can get shit done. My goal personally is I want to write big ass checks to the most progressive candidates so they can get elected to the United States. Because whether or not we like it... Money runs politics in the U.S. I don't like that reality, but it is a truth, right? And so my desire is that, sure, you need a big-ass check, this super progressive person who's going to finally help us get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. Yes. How much money? Let's do that. That is what (laughs) I want to do. I want to write checks to people to actually change systemic shit. And I can't do that if I'm freaking broke. My Best analogy, because I have struggled with this for a long time, you know, being a social worker, working with some of the poorest folks, then actually becoming an extremely low income person. I I really struggled with this idea of it being okay for me to want to build wealth. And I was working with a coach on this and I was really, really struggling with this. And she said, I want you to imagine that you're in a lake and everybody in the lake, including you, you're all drowning. You're all struggling to stay with your head above water. You all are in the same financial position. You are all broke. You're all super low income. You can't help each other. She's like, but if you have resources, you have a boat and you can pull people up out of the water or you can go to shore and get more helpers. You can build more boats and then you can help all the people out of the water. And it was just such a powerful visual for me because I I was so convinced that to be in solidarity, I also had to be struggling. And Mm -hmm. I've realized that that's actually not helpful. No, no. I, I mean, this is, 
I love hearing this because I, I struggle with this on my side too. Like I feel guilty that I have a full-time job right right now. Imagine that. Imagine feeling guilty for having to work for a living. And that's like where I am where I'm like, oh my God, like we can afford groceries and stuff now. And I'm not like losing sleep every night about like what's going to happen to us next. And we're not rich at all, you know, but it, it is interesting. I feel like we get into this mindset. And then at the same time, we're like, oh, but like totally spend your billions of dollars to build useless rockets to the moon. <laughs> right. Right. Like we all have a lot to unpack. Yes. I, we, we have are, a lot we, to we, unpack. I think as Americans in particular, we have a very bizarre relationship with money and wealth. And there's a lot of unpacking and there's a lot of trauma around all of that. But at the end of the day, I really do hope, and if you have, I'm sure you have small business owners listening here, please prioritize making your businesses profitable and paying yourselves well, because you are your number one creative asset. And if you, you cannot pour from Mm -hmm. an empty cup, if you are stressed, if you are frazzled, you cannot do your best work. And as one of my business mentors used to tell me, you can't change the world if you don't exist, if your business doesn't exist. I love that. So I love that. So speaking of unpacking and collective trauma, let's talk about <laughs> yeah, the challenges. <laughs> yeah, the challenges of making clothes in more sizes because yeah. my experience in the industry has been that it is it is so fucking hard to get clothes made in larger sizes for reasons for reasons unknown. I mean I can go into them. <laughs> Most of the reasons no, are unknown no, they're because known. they're all in like people's head. They're they're known, but like they're not they're no they're not known. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like like yeah, fit is more challenging. It costs more money. But for the problem is that more companies haven't invested the money in that. Right. That more factories aren't I mean factories are just confused by it sometimes or say they can't do it and it's like come on guys. There's the unknown part, right? I mean, I know what's going on behind the scenes there, right. but it's so egregious yes. because what we really see is all these companies leaving money on the table. Right. And their goal is to make money. So <laughs> well they so the so at the end of the day, this can all be explained by fat phobia. And I get a lot of criticism when I say shit like that. Oh, it's just an oversimplification, blah blah blah. And the reason I say that is pretty simple. If you look at what has happened in fashion in the past 10 years, all this crazy shit we've come up with in regards to sustainable fashion, right? We're making handbags out of cactus or, you know, mushrooms. And we've got sequins that are like biodegradable. We have invested a metric fuck ton of cash into these quote unquote sustainable. And I'll I'll get to the quote unquote why it's not fucking Uh, sustainable at all. Yeah, yeah. But we have no problem investing in these things and exploring them and spending money on them. But then when we talk about making clothes bigger, all of a sudden it just gets too hard. That's too hard. Just gets too too hard. Yeah. The reality is we don't want fat people in our brand. Our brand is aspirational. We fat is not aspirational. We don't want people dressing in our clothes who are that size. That, that is the reality of it. Right. And then Mm -hmm. that directs Mm -hmm. where the money flows. If the people at the top or the designers, whomever don't believe that fat people can be beautiful, are beautiful, deserve to be in these clothes, are aspirational, then those clothes just won't get made. It's just that simple. And the reason I know this to be true is at my company, Alice Alexander, we created all of our patterns in-house. We did not have like any specialized training. Yes, my employees went to fashion school, but they weren't learning how to design for fat folks. We brought in other fat folks, myself included, and we made clothes for them. 
that's what it was. We imagine we, we created. We took their measurements. We created patterns. We put the clothes on their body, and we tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked until we figured out what worked. And then we came up with a formula for how to make patterns for fat folks. And me myself, being fat, I don't understand why companies say this is so fucking hard when it's not. Is it an investment? Yes, of course. Anything's an investment. We have to make two sets of patterns. You have your plus patterns, so from 1X to 4X, and then you have your smaller patterns from extra small to large. And then they have to meet in the middle and you have to smooth out all the grade rules. Yes, there are technical challenges. From a production standpoint, yeah, now you have to split your sizes between your straights and your plus, and that means you might be getting less of these sizes and more of these sizes. But the reality is this isn't some like incredible math equation that is just impossible to figure out. It is rooted in fat phobia. And I think once we can finally be honest about that, then we're going to start to see movement in the industry. But if we keep coming back to, it's just too hard, it's just too expensive, then the conversation shuts down, right? Because people don't know how to solve those problems. But if we really say it is about fat phobia and this is fat phobic bullshit and we actually start calling people on this, then I think we can start to see some change. Yeah. I mean, that's what it really it is, is, right? Like, I I mean, like, the, the huge company that I worked for in Philly absolutely refuses yes. to make larger sizes. And certainly they have all the resources in the world yes. to do it. And there's, it's interesting to me because I saw all the ways that that company and all the other companies I worked for, except for ModCloth, they were <laughs> nice, uh, prioritized profit, mm-hmm. stacking up that money over anything else. And so therefore we were always, you know, having to make so-called tough mm-hmm. decisions to deliver those profits. Like, you know, laying people off and underpaying people and not right. giving them benefits and all that stuff. But yet here's an opportunity to have this huge revenue yeah. driver, yeah. like so much yeah. money. And it's like, no, I mean, that is like some dark. It shit. is. And I really think there's also another thread that we need to pull on there. No fashion pun intended, but, but really <laughs> remember who is fashion for? Is it actually for right. women? Or is it for women to be viewed by men? Right. Really think about that. Because I've shopped in stores and fucking clothes are really uncomfortable. Bras suck. Spanx suck. A lot of these things are uncomfortable, (laughs) but they make my body look hot. And who does that matter to? The male gaze. Right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Profitability is important. But what straight men think about you is probably even more so in their eyes. Right? Yeah. And I think that's something yeah. you really need to kind of wrestle with. You know, it's it's not just capitalism, it's also the patriarchy. You know? Yeah, yeah. So this is reminding me, speaking of patriarchy, speaking of rich white men. <laughs> so at one of my jobs, there was a merchant development program where like, you know, every week or so you like if you were early in your career, you would go to these different seminars about different topics to develop you as mm. a merchant, as a buyer. And in one of these sessions, they had the founder of the company, a CEO, a rich white Republican mm. man come and speak to us about founding mm-hmm. the brand and everything. And he said something that I mean, this was so long ago and my skin still crawls every time I think about it. Um, So now all of you get to have your skin crawl. And he said, I mean, this is a man who's like, you know, I would say older than my dad. Mm -hmm. He says, it's really important that girls feel sexy. Oh, So if they're going to wear a loose shirt, 
their butt needs to be exposed. Oh. Or, or it needs to be low cut in the front if it's going to be oversized. Oh. Or like there always needs to be some skin showing because it's really important that girls feel sexy. Wow. And I just was like, is that what makes girls feel sexy? <laughs> to like wear a high low top? Is, is, that, is that what it is? Because I actually, when I'm like feeling sexy, uh, it usually has nothing to do with like parts of my body being exposed to the world or feeling uncomfortable. This sounds to me like your butt cracks hanging out or you're getting a draft or. <laughs> and like, why do these I are- owe that to you? Right, like why? right. Because why? I'm a woman, I owe sex appeal to you? Why? Why yeah. am I in service of you? I just thought <laughs> that that was really, really... He also did a weird thing where he turned around and kind of showed his butt. The whole thing was weird. <laughs> I think for me, as a human who exists on this planet, uh, what's important to me is feel safe, warm, but not too warm, <laughs> comfortable, confident, secure you know, inspired, healthy, mm-hmm. well-rested. Mm-hmm. These are all the things. When I think like, oh, feeling sexy, low on the list. But, like, al- but also like I get to choose when I feel that way, right? Right, right, exactly. And it's probably – it shouldn't have to be on these terms. Exactly, they're on like, my terms. Like, <laughs> like I, I dated this guy years ago who, like, and I'm a really – like I'm into layering many different clothes on top of each other, mm-hmm. having like the biggest outfit when you walk in the room. He said, sometimes it's hard to tell if you feel attracted to me because you're always wearing so many layers of clothes. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what would that mean? How about if I like how I choose to spend my time with right? you? <laughs> what a weirdo. Right? <laughs> What a weirdo. But I do think it's sort of – it's like hashtag patriarchy right there, right? right? Oh, yeah. I really I really have been struggling with this just notion of how and, – and this is my, my personal design perspective is that we design clothes for the wearer, not the viewer. So – and it's such a – it's an important nuance because so much of fashion is about how we're seen, how we're perceived. And yes, culturally, we live in a world where like what we wear, people notice and they make judgments about us. But at the end of the day, the wearer has to be the number one priority. How it makes you feel, right? Is it comfortable? Does it make you feel confident? Does it make you feel secure? Does it make you feel safe? Does it bring you joy? You know? Yeah. And, and we have yeah. so many companies who are run by people living in bodies that don't represent their customer base. And so they actually don't have the perspective about what actually matters when you're wearing clothes, you know? So yeah, like you're yeah. like your former boss, which is like the grossest thing ever, but not at all surprised. And all, also almost I'm kind of like, okay, he's at least honest like about what he thinks. <laughs> I I guess he put his cards on the table. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, okay, well, let's let's move on here. Uh, because I could talk about that. That's like know, seven right? episodes right there. <laughs> I have to unpack the trauma of hearing that statement in the meeting. I just, <laughs> It was like 15 years ago, and I'm still struggling with it. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans, or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress. Although, yes, I've done both of those. I have many regrets about it. Don't be like me wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have. 
It's a need to have. And shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, secondhand first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one, and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop, and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes, from extra small to 5X, and they offer all of the premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends, is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop? Revive Athletics. Well, if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store or you can go online at reviveathletics.com no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively from members of the Clothes Horse community. Use promo code REVIVEIT15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks, it's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're going to love what you see. How has the pandemic affected your business? Because yeah. you talked about, you know, you just had to lay a bunch of people off. Like, what's going on? Yeah. So, you know, the pandemic has been brutal. Um, and actually, like, <laughs> it's, I don't know if I would have made the same decisions that I made had I known it would have gone on this long. Um, Woof. Seriously. You know, and the irony is, is we moved into a new space the day the city shut down all the small business, all businesses. Oh, March fifteenth, twenty twenty. I was standing in our new studio. I remember that day. <laughs> standing in our new studio, full of all of our boxes. The movers had just dropped off the machines. It was around lunchtime, 
my employees showed up. They were all excited. And a couple hours later, the, the mayor said all businesses are shut down for the next 90 days. And I, I remember just going home and like weeping because it Aww. felt like everything I had worked so hard for and all of the sacrifices that my family and I had made to get to where we were was just being taken away. And I know we were in a global pandemic and I should be thinking about others, but I was selfishly just thinking about what the hell does this mean for me and us? And, um, you know, for the next 90 days, we, uh, we pivoted. I know that word's been so overused. Uh, my team worked from home. <laughs> They were sewing from home and we sewed a thousand masks um, and we distributed those masks to uh, low income people, people who uh, uh, are using drugs and were, you know, people who were experiencing homelessness, you know, working with various nonprofits in Philadelphia, people who were not being prioritized for PPE. Um, and mm -hmm. we knew that we could quickly get them masks. And so we just, we did that. Um, and we really tried. I mean, we really tried for almost two whole years. Um, we used every resource available to us, private grants, government grants. Um, but the damage that COVID has done to small businesses like mine, um, you know, when I calculated up on paper, it literally makes me sick about how much money we have lost, uh, trying to weather this thing. Um, and really the horrific and lackluster response from city, state, and federal government. Um, and we literally tried everything, but we just ran out of time, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I true. kept my team on for 13 months longer than I basically, uh, supplemented our revenue every month for 13 months past when we actually made enough revenue to keep on a team of our size. And wow. I did that because I really believed, I really believed it would work out. I believed that we had built a good enough team and we, they're excellent human beings. I believed that our product was valuable enough and wanted. I believed that the factory issues we're experiencing, you know, that, that those were, we were going to overcome those. I believe the supply chain issues that we were experiencing, we could overcome them. And we literally just ran out of time. And so mm -hmm. I laid off half the team in November and the remaining team last month. Um, and, you know, we are moving forward with the business mainly because I have to. This is my only source of income for my family. Um, mm -hmm. And because I really do believe we make an incredible product and our customers will be the first to tell you that. Um, the economics just don't really work. You know, my vision was to build a factory in Philadelphia and create a job training program and really do something cool and awesome. And COVID took that away from me, um, as it did for a lot of people, right? So it has, it's forced me to change everything about what is possible and about what I want and being really clear about my priorities. And so, yeah. It was, uh, it's been a really rough couple of years, but we've still got plans and we're going to be producing a lot less focusing on doing two collections a year versus lots of like mini collections and single drops throughout the year. Um, yeah, I'm really prioritizing these pieces that bring me joy as opposed to what everybody is doing right now, like athleisure and sweatpants. Like, I don't want that. I want, <laughs> I want beautiful clothes that make me feel amazing. So yeah, COVID, it's been absolutely devastating. I can't understate it enough. Uh, it's been incredibly stressful. Um, but yeah, we're just going to keep moving forward. 
I mean, so that and that is part of the reason you moved to France, not because you've like retired onto a yacht. Oh God, no. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the reason I'm here is multi-layered. Uh, first and foremost, you know, being an entrepreneur in the United States is uh, pretty much impossible unless you have, if you don't have health insurance. <laughs> so. Um, I have a couple of chronic health conditions, one of which is a heart condition that I was terribly sick with for a few years when I first started my business. And uh, the procedures cost $200,000 to get done that I had to get done. And um, I come from a family with chronic health issues. And it really got scary to think about how we could be medically bankrupt because like yeah. for no fault of our own, right? And so um, that is one of the reasons why I was like, we should really consider moving somewhere where, you know, we don't have these worries about healthcare. Uh, I also wanted to really decrease our cost of living. You know, we're living in the Northeast in the United States, uh, you know, with a mortgage and big utility bills. And just like, it felt like we never, ever had enough. Um, we, for years, we mm -hmm. just really struggled. We couldn't pay our bills at all. And it was just so stressful and traumatic. And so my vision was really, I want to learn how to dramatically simplify our lives uh, and one of the ways I wanted to do that was, you know, financially, like, how can we lower our expenses, but without living in such a way where you're crushing your quality of life, and you're constantly worried about every nickel you're spending, I didn't want to live that way either, right? So I wanted to find mm -hmm. a way to bring joy into our lives, improve the quality of life while lowering our overall <clears throat> family expenses. And so we decided on France, we live in Montpellier, which is a city in the south of France. The weather is beautiful. It's pretty warm every day. So we don't have to worry too much about our utility bills. Um, you, <laughs> we don't have nice. a car. We take a tram everywhere or an electric bike. So we don't have that expense. We don't have the healthcare expenses that we had back in the United States. We have an excellent healthcare system here. Um, the cost of getting here was high, you know, the visa costs and doing all of that. Um, but for us, it felt like a really wise investment. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm also working on some stuff for the business here because we are producing in Europe. Uh, so it actually gets me closer to some of our suppliers. Uh, and we have some cool stuff that's happening that'll be launching this spring um, <clears throat> that we've been working on for the past six months here. But yeah, for me, it was a really big, I wanted to find a way for us to dramatically change our lives and create more joy and peace and ease in our lives to allow me and my family to really focus on each other and all the time that we've, that we can spend together. Um, and this was the way that I figured out how to do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it. I mean, God, the medical, when you started talking about the $200,000 procedure, I immediately started, I know, my brain right? started to shut down because this is like, I mean, <laughs> I don't like, once again, going back to this idea that like out here, we're seeing like billionaires operating without any pushback. I mean, a little bit, but like in general, people are like, whatever, yeah. it's business. And we're, and we're being like dicks to yeah. small businesses. The struggle is so mm -hmm. hard here in the United States. Like it feels like everything is a struggle. It feels like it's like a constant battle. <laughs> you know? A constant battle. Yeah. It, it's so hard. We need to be focusing our energy on that rather than questioning people about like why you charged fifty dollars for this thing you sewed yourself. <laughs> I mean, right. Right. I, I I'm I'm much more interested in systemic issues, challenging these systemic issues. Um, so that everybody can live a life of joy and peace and ease, right? And happiness. Like that should be the goal. 
in my uh, opinion. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, like people who push back and are like, well, why do we even talk about fashion? It's stupid. Or like, what does it matter how many clothes <laughs> I buy at H&M? I'm like, listen, this entire industry is like a case study in all the problems in the world right now. They all intersect yes, there. They all intersect. It's so true. It's so true. And it's like so much money exchanges hands. So much exploitation happens. So much waste. Yes. It's people think, oh, it's just clothes, but no. it's not just clothes. It's not just clothes. It's not just clothes. It's a huge system. And when we and when we dismiss it as that, we neglect all of the power that us as an individual, the, the power that clothes give us as an individual, how we show up into a room, how we show up into a meeting, how we show up in our lives, how confident or confident we don't feel, right? And ask any marginalized person, especially a fat person, if clothes matter, and, and they'll tell you their experience. I can't pop into a shop and just buy something. Right, right. Literally, I can't buy a bra. I can't buy a pair of underwear. I can't buy a pair. If, if I went on vacation and I lost my, my suitcase, what would I do? Right. That's terrifying. Seriously. Yeah. I can't, I can't buy a bathing suit. I can't pop into a shop and buy new clothes. Yeah. Where, where, especially where I live right now, there's nothing. And I feel like that's like a privilege, the privilege to be able to do that, that a lot of people are unaware of. Completely unaware of, despite plus size people making up the majority of the U.S. population. It's so bizarre. I don't it's understand. It's because we hate fat people. We don't see them. We pretend they're not there. Well, it's like because and we see it as a temporary thing, right? Like it, if you're well, any valuable yeah. human, you'll move out of it. It's right, ridiculous. You'll lose weight. My favorite was always so when people like you and they find you attractive, and then you tell them, so you know, I'll be with girlfriends or whatever. We'll be talking about shopping on this, that, and I'm like, oh, I can't shop there. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, oh, they don't make my size. And they're like, oh, have you tried on the biggest size? I'm like. You have no concept for how fat my ass is because I am, I am attractive in your eyes. I am, you, you, you think I'm funny or smart and conventionally attractive. I can't possibly also be fat because then your brain is just going to explode, right? <laughs> yes. And it's like, no, my ass is that fat. Like I can't fit in an airplane seat. <laughs> People are like, wait, what? I'm like, yes. Why is this hard for you to understand? Like, what, what is not connecting in your brain? <laughs> yeah. So it's just like we – when I when you, when we hear things like fashion is frivolous blah 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 yeah it's really frivolous if you can pop into anywhere and get exactly what you need but I can't even buy a basic pair of black fucking pants at a store if I lost them on vacation and needed to go get something like if I got invited to an event and like needed something special to wear I can't just pop into a shop and buy a gown I can't get yeah. something off rent the runway like that's just not a thing for me right and so many other fat people. <laughs> It's just not a thing. <laughs> it's just not a thing. And I think that it, it is it's so interesting. Our are the way our society approaches being fat, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. they try to like medicalize it. I don't yes. even know if that's a term, but like it's an illness, right? So yeah. the best thing we can do is ignore it and <laughs> let the medical professionals deal with it. Let the medical professionals handle this. <laughs> but it's also like for, listen, they're not handling it. They're for, doing a terrible job the, yeah, of like apparently. helping any fat person with any problem, not oh, even God. their fat. If you have a fucking broken arm and you go to the doctor, they're like, have you considered losing weight? I'm like, my fucking arm is broken. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do I fell out of a tree or something. <laughs> yeah, but like, have you considered losing weight? Oh my, it's ridiculous. There's that, right? But then all conversely, it's like it, being fat is so many people's worst nightmare and their worst right? insult. I remember getting into a disagreement with a friend of mine and she immediately was like, yeah, well, you know what? You're fat. Yeah. yeah. At least I'm not fat. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, way to show your true colors. Right? 
right? I was like, yes, I'm fat and my hair is brown and my eyes are green and I'm six foot tall and I'm really funny and smart. What else? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If you're going to insult me, call me a bitch. Like, get a better insult because that one's not an insult. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Imagine fighting with someone and being like, well, yeah, well, you're tall. You're tall. I'm like, oh, thank you. You have eyes. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations for your powers, your astute powers of observation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's – it, we're so far away from untangling this and yes. like making it better and fair. And I just, it's like sometimes I, I get depressed or I'm like, I don't, I can't see the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's with mm-hmm. like so many things. It's not, it's just, it's not just anti-fat bias and people being right. shitheads and not making clothes for people and all this other stuff. But it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, how do we delete this bullshit from people's brains? <laughs> You know, is there a pill? Should we medicalize anti-fat bias? Is fat phobia an illness that That we we can cure? That we can cure. Maybe that's the direction we need to go. That is the direction we need to go. It absolutely (laughs) is. I mean, because what they're doing right now ain't working. I mean, I was just reading a thing the other day, you know, discriminating somebody based on their size is legal in 48 states. What? You You can get fired for being fat. Jesus. In 48 states in the United States of America, fat women earn, I think it was $10,000 less per year than their slimmer counterparts. Believe and it. The, and the fatter they are, the less money they make. Yeah. The, it's all discrimination. Just- it's discrimination, but we have this long-held belief that your weight is with it. Not only is it within your control, but it is a moral failing if you do not remain thin. And again, again, this comes back to the male gaze, the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to like oversimplify it, but at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Fat women are rebellious. They're bad women and girls, right? They're not following mm-hmm. the rules. They're yeah. not staying in the box because we're saying, fuck that. I'm going to let my body do what my body does. And I don't have yeah. to explain it to you. I don't have to say, oh, I was sick or I had a baby or any of that shit. You can just be fat for no other reason that you just are. You don't have to explain it away. You don't have to medicalize it. But you're a human being that deserves to exist and deserves love and respect. Yeah, yeah. I was reading uh, a while back. I don't even know what I was reading. I read so much. It's just all in my brain, swirling (laughs) around. The origins of like suddenly women being expected to be as thin as possible to Mm -hmm. diet compulsively. Because I I also want to say that like diet culture is not just about thinness. It's about Mm -hmm. control, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm about uh, obedience. Distracting us from Mm -hmm. our real potential. Yes. it all began to really come up in the like the late Victorian era mm-hmm. as people started to say, like, listen, if you're a good Christian woman mm-hmm. who really is in service to God, then you will be starving yourself mm-hmm. because you'll be denying yourself food and I guess probably like, you know, good, good, solid blood sugar levels. Mm. If you really, really appreciate God and, obe- and are obedient to your husband as God wants you to be and all these other things. And. I think when you break it down that way, you know, there are plenty of people out there who would hear you say that and be like, that's really fucked up. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, welcome to diet culture, bro. Yeah. Still going strong. And there's a lot of research around the racialized origins of fat phobia. Um, I would encourage people to check out the works by Sabrina Strings, who talks about how the, uh, like, during the slave trade, how it became this 
we would objectify black women and African women and their bodies and call them names. And that it was white women who they had to make sure their bodies didn't look anything like that. Right. Because having big breasts or a big butt, it was rude. It was, you know, rooted in racism. And so it's really, really interesting when we look at it through that lens and really any diversity in body type, it's all about conforming to the white European standard, right? Mm-hmm. And anything that mm-hmm. deviates from that is bad. And it's really fucked up when you think about it. <laughs> and the white European standard is like delusional too. It's not real. Like completely it's all it's it's all made up. <laughs> it's all made up. And it's all just another form of control. Absolutely. You know? And imagine how much time our brains would have how much time and space our brains would have to create beautiful things, to be joyful, to advocate, to organize, to activate. If we weren't obsessed with making our body smaller. Totally. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, well, this has been so delightful. Uh, it has. <laughs> do you, do you have any final words of wisdom or just important things you want to tell everybody? Hmm. You know, I, I, I'm, I think about sustainable fashion, you know, that's what so many of your podcast listeners, and we didn't even really touch on this, but the thing that I'm just obsessing over lately, is just overconsumption. And that if we can't actually start to be real about our insatiable need to consume mm-hmm. as many items as possible, you know, I was just playing with math before this 80 billion garments created a year, we have 1 billion consumers, each person is consuming 80 garments a year. If we can't tackle the issue of consumption, no amount of recycled leggings are going to save us from this mess. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I think just the absolute best thing each and every one of us can do is to to really think about style and fashion as cultivating a wardrobe over time of pieces that you love that are the best quality that you can afford that fit your body and not forcing your body to fit into the clothes and really that just bring you joy. And if we can focus on that, we're going to stop chasing all the bullshit trends we see on Instagram and TikTok. We're going to stop popping out to the shop every 5.5 days to get something new. And we're going to slow down our overall consumption because that's really the only way out of this mess. That and massive government regulation. But the way the United States is going these days, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, yeah, that's what I, know. I would just leave I, your listeners with. <laughs> I, I mean, ag- agreed on all. You know, like, it, I think that unfortunately – we all have to make changes in our lives mm-hmm. to make larger select, uh, larger systemic change. And I think that that's really hard for people. Mm-hmm. It's something, uh, you know, and climate change is the same thing, right? Like, yeah. yes, we need better policies and we need uh, big corporations to clean up their act. But like real talk, we're also going to have to change our habits. Yeah. We're going to have to take public transportation. We're going to have yep. to think about the way we heat and cool, cool our ho- homes differently. And I mean, mm-hmm. so many other things. And I think that people tend to want the change they definitely they're like yeah of course but yeah. they don't want to have to do any changing and yeah. that's an argument i come up against a lot yeah there's something i always say um i think the distance between the world we want and the work we're willing to do for it sometimes i think it might be too far yeah I and we have and we have to really be willing to close that gap both at a systemic level and an individual level um and you know i don't really know if we're there yet I'm, I'm going to do my part. I'm also really interested in working on like more policy level changes. Um, but yeah, it's a big, big, big leap. It is. 
it, I mean, we have a lot of we have our work ahead of us. Yes, we do. <laughs> and we need everybody involved. Everybody. Yes. And we need to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. Seriously, I can't believe we're still having this conversation. <laughs> and we need to get rid of Senator Manchin and Senator well, what's the one from Arizona. We need to get rid of both of them. Cinema. Need to vote. Yeah, you need to be yeah. To vote. You need to vote in every election. Yes, seriously, especially if you live in West Virginia or yes, in, please or Arizona. Yes, please. Good Lord, Manchin. Ah. <laughs> Don't get me started. Anyway, uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of February, St. Evans is supporting the Yellowhammer Fund, a reproductive justice organization serving Alabama and the Deep South. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Thank you so much to Mary Alice for such an amazing conversation. It was so much fun. And, you know, we recorded this very early in the morning here in Austin. That France-Texas time difference is pretty rough. But this was the best possible way to start my day. It turns out I need to get riled up every morning by doing a closed horse interview first thing. I think it really set me up for a better day. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed participating in it. You can find Alice Alexander, that's Mary Alice's brand, on Instagram as at AliceAlexanderCo and at AliceAlexander.co. And of course, all of that will be in the show notes. You don't need to write that down. Why did I even say it out loud? I don't know. Maybe because you, I thought you were driving while you listened to this. Anyway, <laughs> we don't talk about inflation much here on Close Horse, but... If you want me to do that, just let me know because, of course, I've done a ton of reading, thinking, listening about that over the past few months. But even if you're not a deep economic nerd like myself, you certainly have noticed or heard that things are more expensive now. Some of these price increases are related to demand exceeding supply. That's some classic economics there. For example, we see that with the price of used cars going up. There are less used cars available right now because less people have been buying new cars. Why? Because of chip shortages. Micro, not potato, not tortilla. Am I missing any other chips there? It turns out that we need people to want to trade in their current cars for new cars, in order to maintain a steady stream of used car inventory. Used cars depend on new cars. Without the microchips to make new cars, there are no new cars. (laughs) A lot of other things have gotten more expensive due to exponential cost increases for shipping. It's kind of one of those things you don't think about when you're buying something Well, you probably do if you've been listening to Clothes Horse long enough. You're not just paying for that thing or the materials in that thing. You're paying for all the other things involved in creating and getting that thing to you, and that includes shipping it to you. Some of my clients and friends have seen their cost to ship goods increase more than 80%, and that 
that is a massive increase. And not passing it on to the consumer is basically impossible. I'm seeing so many small businesses make the very painful decision to raise prices in order to stay in business because they just can't afford to cover all of these rising costs. You know, it is transportation, it is materials, it is all kinds of other things. At the same time, by raising their prices, they're kind of backed into the corner here, right? They have to. They risk alienating customers, which I already see happening on social media. So that could drive them out of business too. It's a really, really difficult time to be a small business owner because you just – You got it coming at you from all directions. There are also pandemic-related shortages in raw materials, factory space, energy, packaging, just everything really. And once again, this has some significant impact on small businesses. And like the used car market, the demand for all of this stuff, these services, is exceeding supply, so prices are continuing to go up. That's the classic rule of capitalism. When these prices go up for the companies or makers or retailers, then the prices also go up for the consumers. And so everyone is paying more for everything right now. Some retailers and restaurants are blaming a rise in wages for their increased pricing, which I call bullshit on. <laughs> and that kind of defense really just succeeds in getting the working class to turn on one another, blaming one another for their struggles. Oh, maybe my groceries wouldn't be so expensive if you needed to have health insurance, that kind of thing. But the reality is that most of these companies aren't paying a living wage in the first place. And so if their claim that they are raising prices due to increasing wages is true, then they have built an entire business plan that can only profit by exploiting and underpaying workers. That's what they're really revealing about themselves when they say that they have to raise prices in order to cover increasing wages. I'm looking at you, Chipotle. Chipotle does this a lot. As I say all of this, you should envision the emoji with the hand on the chin, an emoji that I feel is an act of war. suppose this is war. And uh, I would also say... Don't use that emoji with anyone you love or like. It's it's It starts something. But I would say feel free to use that emoji every single time a retailer or Chipotle or some other large company says they have to raise prices in order to cover employee wages because hmm, it probably won't add up. It's a great time for the chin emoji. In December 2021, which feels like it was a really long time ago, but it was – Somehow not. (laughs) Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote an open letter to the CEOs of Kroger, Publix, and Albertsons, asking them to justify raising food prices for American consumers while also paying out huge bonuses to executives. Listen, if you've gone grocery shopping lately, stuff is expensive. And we're we're an Audi family over here, so we – we're cheap. We're thrifty. How about we say we're thrifty? We went to Aldi last week and I was stunned by some of the prices. Like legit some items had doubled in price. I was I was shocked. So Elizabeth Warren sent this letter and in it she said, quote, large grocers are blaming high food costs on inflation. 
But it's time to talk about how they're using every opportunity to rake in profits, reward executives and big shareholders while driving up prices even more. These companies made record profits during the pandemic and when faced with the choice to retain lower prices for consumers and properly protect and compensate their workers, they greedily granted massive payouts to top executives and investors. They need to answer for these actions. Man, I love Elizabeth Warren or whoever wrote this letter. I mean, she was a part of it. The person in her office who wrote this letter did a great job. According to the Census Bureau's monthly retail trade report, in 2020, a bad year for most businesses, a super bad year for most businesses, the grocery industry saw an 11% sales increase over the previous year, which is a big deal. That was an average of $63 billion each month in a time where every other type of retailer was struggling Grocery was killing it. I mean, think about it. Restaurants were closed and people needed to buy even more food. According to Supermarket News, which by the way, I'm just going to tell you, not my first time reading Supermarket News. You'd be surprised how often I've read Supermarket News. According to them, before the pandemic, 37% of adults ate breakfast at home every day, meaning two-thirds of people, roughly, did not eat breakfast at home. Only 26% ate lunch at home, so three-quarters of people ate lunch out. And only 18% of families ate dinner at home every day. In other words, we ate most of our meals out before the pandemic, or at least we we got takeout, we bought prepared foods at the grocery store, but the most important thing is we were not cooking our food. Suddenly, everyone had to eat at home all the time. You couldn't even get takeout food at the grocery store for quite a while, right? They weren't making any prepared foods even. It was a boom for the supermarket industry. Imagine supermarkets absorbing that entire stream of money that had been spread out amongst thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe even, restaurants across the United States. And that momentum continued through 2021, even as stuff reopened somewhat, because many people continued to eat at home most of the time. And a lot of people learned that they saved money eating at home, or they preferred to eat at home, or they loved cooking, or they just weren't ready to feel safe eating in a restaurant. The pandemic was good for grocery stores. When you get down to it, that's, that's just the fact. Going back to Senator Warren's letter, she said, in 2020, Kroger reported $2.6 billion in profits, up 5.6% from 2019. Albertsons reported $1.89 billion in net income for 2020, an increase from $612.1 million in 2019. That's Wow, just jumping in here to say that is so huge. I can't believe it. And Publix reported a 60% growth in profit for the third quarter of 2020. All of these companies, Kroger, Albertsons, and Publix, they own a lot of other chains. So there is a chance that your local grocery store is owned by one of these corporations. Senator Warren goes on to write, according to Publix's public filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the higher sales from the COVID-19 pandemic 
more than offset the additional costs incurred from the company's rapid expansion to fill rising demand. Grocery chains supplemented the profits from rising demand with other cost-cutting measures, in some cases depriving frontline workers of hazard pay or failing to adopt necessary workplace safety precautions. In addition, large grocery chains also took advantage of consumers to increase their profits during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lawsuit filed in Texas alleged that 19 grocery stores, including Kroger and Albertsons, participated in price gouging in the first months of the pandemic, nearly tripling the price of eggs during the state's state of disaster in March 2020. Similarly, a class action lawsuit of Safeway customers alleged that their parent company, Albertsons, was responsible for inflating prices in California in violation of a state law preventing increases greater than 10% during a state of emergency. Once again, all of that comes from Senator Warren's letter. I'm going to link to it if you want to go read the whole thing. There are a lot of links there that will take you back to the sources of that information. Basically, what Senator Warren is saying is that instead of investing money in frontline workers and keeping prices more accessible to consumers, which the grocery store chains could have done. These chains opted to pay bigger executive bonuses, roughly tripling some salaries in some cases. And they also paid exceptional dividends to shareholders. For example, at the end of 2020, Albertsons announced a $300 million stock buyback program. Publix paid out an extra $70 million in dividends in the first three quarters of 2021, and Albertson CEO Vivek Sankaran's bonus went from approximately $2.6 million in 2019, I'd take that, that's a decent amount, to over $4.3 million in 2020. Once again, this is the pandemic. So many people are suffering losing their homes, losing their cars, losing their sense of security, losing loved ones. The CEO of Albertsons, he nearly tripled his base salary of $1.5 billion. If you're not outraged, how about this? In June of 2021, Kroger announced that it would be closing stores in cities that required that $4 an hour hazard pay for frontline workers. The company claimed that the grocery industry's razor-thin margins just couldn't cover it. Guess what? Last June, the same month that Kroger said it was going to close those stores because it couldn't afford that $4 an hour increase for hazard pay, Kroger announced a $1 billion stock buyback program. Yep, they had a billion dollars to throw around, yet couldn't pay that $4 an hour. Senator Warren wrapped up her letter with this. Your companies had a choice. They could have retained lower prices for consumers and properly protected and compensated their workers or granted massive payouts to top executives and investors. It is disappointing that you choose not to put your customers and workers first. Warren requested info from these companies, and we'll see what happens next, but uh, makes me really, really angry because we all need food. We have no choice but to go buy food and this is just it's just hurting people of all classes of all socioeconomic situations and it's benefiting a very select few people 
I'm telling you this story because it's an example of, well, it's just business. That's how business is. It's just business. This implication, which is also tossed out to defend just about any toxic system, is that if you can't handle business, then maybe you're the problem, not the system, right? I've talked here on the podcast many times about a job I had with the horrible, abusive, quote, feminist brand. You know, the CEO there loved to say that if you were unhappy there, it was because you couldn't handle startup life. It was your problem. You were the weak one, not the company's toxic, no health insurance, no work-life balance culture. It certainly wasn't working for someone who would bully and humiliate you at any moment in front of someone else. Nope. The problem was you because it's just business. It's how it goes. We're supposed to expect it. Not only expect it, accept it. Adapt to accommodate it. Hmm. Here comes that chin emoji again. (laughs) I see just business tossed out all over the place as a way of defending the prioritization of profits over people. And as Mary Alice and I discussed, it's often thrown out there as a defense by other working class people, people who are also being impacted by the decisions of these companies. Surely all of these people are feeling the pain of increasing food costs. Would they jump in to defend the behavior of the big supermarket chains as, you know, just business? Or does that only apply to the so-called others in the world, like garment workers, retail workers, teachers, etc.? Hey, it's just business? Hmm. Man, we're tossing out a lot of chin emojis in this episode. <laughs> In our conversation, I wondered aloud if being a billionaire involved a specific type of mental illness or personality disorder. And I didn't say that to disparage or dismiss mental illness or those who cope with it every day. Mental illness does not, this is for everyone in the back, it does not equal bad or dangerous person. I myself have been dealing with bipolar disorder since my late teens. You guys like me, right? A significant chunk of the people I love and appreciate most are constantly struggling with getting their medication right or weaning off medication or trying to afford medication, hoping to find a therapist they can afford, trying to self-treat themselves when they can't, and so on and so on. In fact, our inability to have access to good treatment for our mental illnesses just business, right? Just the business of the healthcare industry or just business of the insurance companies. Hmm. Hmm. The thing is, none of us are closing ourselves off to the humanity around us in an effort to collect wealth. That's not how our mental illness is manifesting itself. But I will say that That seemingly insatiable desire for wealth reminded me of some of the feelings I've had when in the midst of some of my worst manic episodes, this need for something unnamed that I just cannot find. And when I do find it, it will never be enough of it. And when I'm feeling that way, I feel sick. I know that I am not well. It made me wonder if that's what it was like to be a billionaire, that you would always feel sick because you would never find what you needed 
in the amount that you needed. Are billionaires a certain personality type? Are they suffering from a mental illness? Because certainly insatiable greed is a problem. We've all longed for things, right? Money, security, love, dessert. But it turns into an illness when it's never enough. Could that be what it means to be a billionaire? In pursuit of my answer, I stumbled across an article from Psychology Today called Psychology's Dark Triad and the Billionaire Class. The super rich aren't the role models we need to advance the common good. And I'll share that in the show notes because it's worth a read. I'm definitely not an expert here. It's better for you to get that info from someone who is. But here's a quote from the article that summarizes it pretty well. Psychological research suggests that the super rich as a group aren't necessarily the role models we collectively need if our goal is to advance the common good and build a more decent society. In particular, one reason to be skeptical involves a constellation of interlinked personality traits, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism. Psychologists call that the dark triad. The originators of the term summarize it this way. To varying degrees, all three entail a socially malevolent character with behavior tendencies towards self-promotion, emotional coldness, duplicity, and aggressiveness. Yes, right now I am the chin emoji. The dark triad is often recognized in charismatic serial killers, think the Ted Bundy type, and it's also recognized in internet trolls. It can be very difficult to spot an individual who embodies the dark triad because they often have a very pleasant public face. But these characters tend to repeatedly lie, demonstrate a marked level lack of empathy, and bully others to achieve their goals. Wait, did I just describe business here? Is just business the dark triad? Well, that raises the question, why are we okay with a system, business, that is built upon dishonesty, lack of empathy, and bullying? Not only are we okay with it, many people will defend it to the end. Ask me how many nasty troll messages I've received about my statements on Amazon and Shein. Why would we ever fall on our sword for this kind of behavior? Going back to the grocery industry, Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen said in an earnings call last summer, quote, our business operates the best when inflation is about 3 to 4%. A little bit of inflation is always good in our business. Why? Because they can easily pass the increased prices onto customers even if they don't need to increase prices because customers expect the prices to be increased. They can raise them beyond what the company needs to maintain current profit levels. And according to McMullen, quote, customers don't overly react to it. Basically, we hear that there's inflation, we hear that costs are going up, and so we're like, I guess everything's more expensive, and we blindly hand over our money, which does raise a point here. Why do we do that with the grocery store, but then we harass someone, a maker on Instagram about their pricing? Going full circle here with my conversation with Mary Alice. Why are we defending 
just business. It's time to dismantle the expectation that business should operate without empathy and with a high level of dishonesty and greed. I've always said that when it comes to big business, where there's smoke, there's fire. If it's a toxic corporate workplace, like you've read an article about that, you can be assured that workers at every level, from factories to warehouses to retail stores, are being underpaid, overworked, and undervalued. If a company is raising prices on essentials like food just because it can and not because it needs to, then you can be guaranteed that company is also engaging in wasteful practices all in the name of profits. And it's certainly underpaying its employees while overpaying its executives. All this bad behavior, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's all connected. Listen, nothing will change without all of us being involved. We can sit around and wait for grocery stores to stop fleecing consumers. We can wait for retailers to stop polluting the planet and exploiting workers. We can wait for Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to end global hunger and poverty, but they won't because none of that will happen. The honor system has not worked. It turns out that both business and billionaires don't deserve our trust. They deserve our oversight and our endless skepticism. And when I say business, I mean big business, not small business. Give those people a break, seriously. The big business who raises prices just because it can or exploits its workers or destroys tons of stuff or probably does all of these things because like I said, they all come together. Those companies don't deserve access to our wallets. Don't give your money to assholes and don't give up fighting for what's right. I think we're going to make a major impact this year and we're going to do it together. Shop small, shop local. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you liked what you're hearing, as always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. If you want to support my work here at Close Horse, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye.